Casebook.org, established by Stephen Ryder in 1996, is the world's largest public repository of information about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. With thousands of contemporary press reports, scans of official documents, photographs, and a message board to discuss and debate the crimes and investigation in Victorian London, Casebook.org is the sponsor of RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. And we join the show already in progress. What I found interesting was that with the various people who confessed through drunkenness, um, the early ones seemed to be investigated a bit more by the police, that they made inquiries into their background, etc. But as the terror moved on, um, they seemed more reluctant to do that. It's if they accepted that these people were coming forward and they weren't involved and they just counted them a lot quicker. Yeah, absolutely correct. And a lot of that's down to manpower. And also, I suspect, experience of realising that these people were were drunks or insane or whatever, and uh, there were an awful lot of them, and not taking them as serious, too seriously, whereas they had before. Yes, Absolutely, I mean... Sorry, sorry, no, you go on, Neil, that's fine. No, 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 yeah, you can't. I was just going to say that it had happened in previous um, murders as well, like the Boswell one, um, where people were coming forward a long time afterwards saying that they had committed it. Um, so the police had some kind of knowledge of these false claims, but obviously not on the scale that they saw in 1888. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I was just going to add on to what Mr. Berg was saying. Um, I mean, if they, we're looking at the, the local bobbies in H Division, they know their manner, they know their patch, they know their drunks, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yes. So, um, so the same places will keep cropping up. It's a lot of it, a lot of it will be, well, not a lot of it, but some of it. I don't know if any, anybody's watched Boys from the Black stuff, but, um, so you guys are used type situation where they, they just want to, want to sell for the night as opposed to, you know, actually confess. But anyway, I think we've started before John's introduced it. Yes, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> um, that, that, that's happened before in the past where I think one show, one show um, people talked for about an hour before um, I was able to introduce the show. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I, I just left it in. And I'll leave that little part in as well. It's a being joined in progress type of a thing. Okay. So I'll uh, go ahead and, and read the introduction. So, Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. I'm Jonathan Mengus and joining the show today is Paul Begg, the author of several books, including The Facts, The Forgotten Victims, CSI Whitechapel, and co-editor of the Jack the Ripper A to Z. Also here with us is Neil Bell, the author of Capturing Jack the Ripper in the Boots of a Bobby in Victorian London. And we're here to welcome Paul Williams to the show. Paul's new book is entitled The Jack the Ripper Suspects, The Definitive Guide and Encyclopedia, published by Vronsky Parker Publications just this last month. Welcome, Paul, Neil, and Paul. Thank you. Hello. Now we have two Pauls here with us today as we were discussing off podcast. So to avoid confusion, I'll call Paul Williams, Paul and Paul Begg, sir. <laughs> Does that sound I'm going good? to enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
Paul Williams, I'll start off with a question I ask most first-time guests, and that is how did you become interested in the Whitechapel murder case? Well, was when I was at school, I was borrowing books from a local library, which was Erdington in uh, Birmingham, um, and I had a lot of books about Jack the Ripper on a true crime shelf, so I took those away, read them. Um, I liked some of them, and then when I went to university, I was studying history, and by chance one day I saw Philip Sedlin's book on the shelf in W.H. Smith, so I bought that, and it impressed me not just as I studied the Whitechapel murders, but as a fantastic book of history. Uh, and as someone who was studying history with aspirations to, to, to write history, I thought this is what I want to do, this is what I want to model myself on. Um, and I particularly liked Sodan's attention to detail and his examination of the sources. And I've reread that book so many times, and it, for me, it is still the Bible um, to go back to. Um, and then after that, I, I started following things up. I did a bit of research into some of the suspects um, for the theologists. Um, and gradually, I began putting those notes into a, a book. Um, I wanted to do something that looked at each suspect and said why were they suspected. Uh, and when you, obviously you've got the main suspects that have been written about many times. I think a lot of people will know all the details about them. But there's a lot of those who are just below the surface who probably aren't well known um, and certainly not in the, the, to the general public. So I want to look at that and say, okay, well, first of all, why were so many people suspected? Because it's an extraordinary number when you think about it. Um, so, what happened? Why were those people suspected? Why were there so many? Um, and gradually, I started putting that into categories and looking at um, what influenced something else. So, for example, you can trace the the later theories back to something that happened in 1888. Coroner Baxter's comments um, about a surgeon being involved potentially, I think, influenced a lot of later theories about doctors and encouraged people in the 70s and 80s to go back and look for doctors <laughs> and basically write a book accusing them. So. I wanted to get at the truth, really. Um, I, I guess everyone wants to know who Jack the Ripper was. Um, I still don't know, and I don't think we ever will. Um, but I wanted to say to, to look and try to find out. And to do that, you have to go back to the sources, look at all the um, suspects, and say, is there a, a case against any of them? Can you actually have something that you could bring to, to, to a, a criminal court? Do you believe that? It's possible that Jack the Ripper is one of those people named in your book? It's possible, but I wouldn't bet on it. <laughs> um, I think it's quite likely that we don't know who... We, we haven't got a name, we haven't come across that name in all the research that people have done. Um, I think it, it, it could well be someone completely unknown to us. So you don't particularly have a preferred suspect? No, I don't. Um, I was particularly interested when I was doing the research in William Onion um, because he was an extremely violent man who knew the area quite well and he had a reason to dislike middle-aged prostitutes. He attacked his um, wife on the wedding day of a knife when he found out she was taking money from a gentleman. And so, but um, unfortunately, well, fortunately for him, he was in jail at the time of the early murders as far as we know, so um, that, that rules him out. But certainly he was a very fascinating character. And really, 
when you look at books about Yarrabeth, I think it's only mentioned once, and that was because of a letter sent to the city place suggesting that he was the culprit. As far as we know, that wasn't followed up, even though the, the Met Police knew him as an extremely violent person who was frequently in the magistrate's court and in and out of jail. Now, ripperologists often refer to a particular genre of ripper books as suspect books, and you've put together a pretty massive one. So you had said that you started off researching just basically for your own interest, like uh, almost like as, as a hobby collecting different suspects and putting them in categories? Or, or did you start off with that process with the goal of publishing a book? I wanted to do, do a book, but I didn't imagine it coming out on this scale. Um, and I think that the number 333 is not a, a, a final number by any means. There's some that I left out for various reasons, and there's others who perhaps aren't suspects. Um, we talked a little bit about the drunks and the lunatics earlier. Now, they were only suspected in their own minds or their own drunken stupor. So are they really a suspect? How, how do we define it? Um, and indeed, I've left a lot of those out because uh, there's, there's hundreds of those alone. So it's, it's an interesting question. What actually is a suspect? Is it someone that was suspected at the time by the police? Do we include those who were accused in anonymous letters for, for no obvious reason? Um, do we include the ones that modern writers have picked on without any real evidence? So it's, it's, it's not an easy question. What's actually a suspect in this case? Yeah. Or what can't, you know, how do we define that? Right. Paul Begg, what would you define as a Jack the Ripper suspect? Well, I think, uh, I think Paul has basically summed it up. With, there used to be discussions uh, about this, and basically, at some point, you could, all, you could include almost anybody who was alive at the time. Yes. Uh, and the, it's difficult to, to actually draw, you know, draw a line under, under where you think... Uh, suspects cease to be suspects it's it's not not easy I and mean, somebody comes up today with the idea that an individual who was alive then was jack the ripper that person suddenly becomes a suspect uh even though they were never suspected before so i tend to think in terms of the people who were suspected by the police at the time uh because there there would be contemporary reasons for them thinking who jack the ripper was we move, uh, we move forward and we look at uh, people named after, after the time and then people who uh, have come to the fore since then. I mean, it's, all, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do, which is one of the things about the book. I mean, picking on suspects, uh, as you say, where, where do you stop? You have to stop somewhere, otherwise the book would just become yes. impossible to, to, to read. Yeah, Stan Russo published a book several years ago, 10 years ago or so, called The Jack the Ripper Suspects. Yes. And, um, and it contained about 70 chapters, each devoted to, um, an individual suspect in alphabetical order. Um, and these are people suspected as being Jack the Ripper either by the police or than by later or by later ripperologists and like for so to give an example of like um in both of your books yours and stan's 
you um, you guys mentioned Fingers Freddy. Um, whereas Stan, Fingers Freddy was probably a fictional person um, who was supposedly the, the footman for William Gull. And Stan devoted an entire chapter in his Jack the Ripper suspect book to Fingers Freddy. Um, and, and the evolution of, of him as, as someone who was involved in, in the royal conspiracy and then Stan would go and, and discuss um, the problems with the suspect candidacy or the involvement of someone like Fingers Freddy and whether he existed at all. Whereas you deal with Fingers Freddy in one paragraph in a, in a much larger section on aristocrats and royalty where you basically uh, set Fingers Freddy's little tale as part of a larger chapter on all the iterations of the royal conspiracy from Philippe Julian through Stowell and Fairclaw and Stephen Knight all the way through to Patricia Cornwell. Yes. Uh, yes, I wanted to group them together. And I think when, when you start looking at the, the royal conspiracy, particularly when people start naming four or five different aristocrats seemingly at random who might have been involved, I thought it was best to, to group those together and uh, not dwell too much on people like Fingers Freddy. Uh, although it's interesting that the name was used as well in, in a series of articles in The Sun in the 60s. Um, uh, it, that nickname was used uh, for an abortionist, um, which I found quite interesting. And wherever um, the royal conspiracy um, writers found that those articles and borrowed that name or whether it was a, a nickname they picked from somewhere else, I'm not quite sure. Well, that, that nickname came from, as you say, the, uh, the Sun in 1972 uh, and a series yeah. of articles uh, by uh, an ex-detective chief superintendent named Arthur Butler. Yes. Where he got the name from, other than out of his imagination, if that was where it came from, um, just simply isn't known. And then, as you say, of course, um, uh, in The Ripper and the Royals by Melvin Fairclough, uh, he suggested that Fingers Freddy may have been Federico Alberici. Yes. Yes. So I guess my kind of my point was is that you include both both you and Stan included in your book on Jack the Ripper suspects even people who who probably didn't even exist. What made you decide to organize your book by theme rather than alphabetically, like similar to an encyclopedia or Jack the Ripper A to Z? Oh, because I wanted to aim for a general reader. Um, I wanted to do a comprehensive narrative, a bit like something that someone who um, could pick it up off the shelf, not know anything about uh, Ripperology or the Whitechapel murders, and read it and, and get something out of it. I think um, when you do A to Zs and, and uh, anything ordered alphabetically, uh, the general readers get a bit confused by that. They're not necessarily that interested because they see it as more of a, uh, a technical book than a, a narrative. Um, and I wanted to do something that um, anyone can pick up off a shelf and say, okay, here is a comprehensive narrative that tells me who the suspects were, and then I can go away and form my own opinion on them. I quite like the narrative format rather than a A to Z type uh, format. I think it worked reasonably well. 
It meant yeah, that you, yeah. Yeah, it helped me to promote things. Yeah, it works well, um, particularly when all the suspects in the chapter are somewhat connected, like mm. in the aristocrats and royals chapter, um, and in the false confessions chapter. It's when you write about um, a whole slew of people during the Autumn of Terror that were just randomly accused for acting suspiciously that, as Paul Begg said in his review, the book could have, I think, benefited from a page referenced index. Oh, God, yes. I rather, mean, that, that... rather than a chapter <laughs> reference that, that mm. appears under the list of all the suspects at the end of the book. Yes, that was one of the options, actually, but we, we didn't go with that. But never mind. Uh, we did think about putting the, the, the suspects at the start of the chapter. Um, and so, you know, or maybe in the contents at the start, so you know which suspects were covered where. Um, but in the end, we didn't do that. No, the book really, 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 really needs an index if you're aiming to um, keep the, the, the hard copy going. If... if if it's mainly thought to be an ebook, then it's not important because obviously you can uh, search a Kindle yes. book or an ebook very easily, but it's very hard to find. I think in the review I mentioned the Spanish guy uh, who'd uh, suspected Abilene, and I said, you know, it'd be virtually impossible to find that within the book without having an index. The fact that I was able to do it because I got the Kindle. As well as the hardback, uh, the, the the paperback. Um, yeah, no, that, I was. I can find him. That's a good point, Paul. I think if it ever goes to a second edition, that's something that certainly I'd want to to incorporate. Yeah. No, I th I think that's that's the important thing because um, inevitably there are going to be errors in the book and and are errors in the book and and it was a huge task for any single individual to have uh, taken on when we did the A to Z uh, there were three of us doing it we still made mistakes so uh, <laughs> and continue yes. to do so sadly but you know you, it's an ongoing thing and um, you know depending upon uh, the publisher and things like this it, you can constantly make improvements until but you know, I mean, in my experience, you never get a book that's completely free of the errors of, of this kind because it's just too big. You can't conceivably be an expert on every suspect. No, and I, and I wasn't trying to, to be an expert. I think what I was trying to do was to say, okay, this is why they were suspected. Mm. And, and document that so that there is a, a reference book for people to go to and say, okay, so-and-so was accused by whoever, uh, and this is the reasons put forward. Um, I think a lot of the suspects have been looked at in more detail by people who know them inside out. Uh, and so invariably, there are a few mistakes that have crept in. Um, fortunately, quite a few people have pointed them out, which is great. <laughs> yes. so, uh, there are a lot, lot of generous people out there, aren't there? <laughs> Well, it, it's fantastic when it comes to, to constantly revising it because the main challenge I had was that there, were, there was new material being found all the time and new accusations coming in and people posting things and writing things. Um, and just trying to stay on top of it 
a year's output was quite a challenge. Um, So picking that up and going back to what you were doing before and seeing what's actually changed, has someone um, challenged this? Uh, Is that still valid? Um, So quite a few things, I think, um, got lost in that and perhaps weren't updated because of of, of the later research. Mm. I was going to ask about that specifically um, because it does lend itself well to being updated occasionally like every few years like the A to Z um, yes do you have any plans to continue <clears throat> to work on this as, as an ongoing project um, yes I will be updating it as I go along um, I won't be sort of going out looking for, for new suspects at the time that uh, every the time I've spent over the last sort of 10 years or so, but certainly when new books and new articles are published, I'll be reading them and making notes on them um, with a view to incorporating those into a second or, or later editions. So you started work on this book about 10 years ago, is that right? Yes, that's right, yes. Okay. Um, how did you decide what about a particular suspect to include and what to leave out? For some suspects, it seems like you chose to describe how they were first named initially, but avoided the arguments made by more recent proponents of the suspect, like in the section about Charles Cross, for example. Um, there's no mention of Chrysler Holmgren or Ed Stowe, except that you allude to Ed Stowe when you mentioned the Bethnal Green Tube Disaster Memorial. Um, yes. Was that a conscious decision on your part to kind of give give the reader an idea of how the how the candidacy of a particular suspect first came about? Yes, um, t- tumble to- tea is kind of the same way. Um, it doesn't seem like you took into account a lot of the more recent research by my colleague, although you do mention the Norris deposition. Yes, um, but not not. A, a bunch of other things that have has been um, discovered just within the last you know year, pretty much. Yes, yeah. I mean, some of the more recent things um, I, I probably struggled to get in. Um, I think initially it was to say, okay, why were they first suspected? Who accused them, and and what were the reasons put forward? Um, Case by case, some people I, I put more detail in than others, and that's really, I suppose, uh, an individual decision. Um, considering space as well, the chapter on Tumbletti is quite long. Um, he's the only one to have an individual chapter to himself. Um, so it was looking where I, I, I could at more recent stuff and what had built on the argument. But the key thing was to say, okay, this is why they were suspected initially. Um, who put them forward, when, uh, which I think is important so that that evolution of a theory can be traced, um, and what were the initial reasons. That, that was, that, I, I like that bit. I mean, the thing that, that won me over with the book um, when, it, when it arrived on my desk, when I look, looked at it for, for the very first time, were all the footnotes, because I thought, well, that's, that's great. Um, yes. It is extremely difficult from time to time to to actually find the source that you uh, the, you know there's a source out there for something, but you don't uh, don't know what it what it was or you yes. can't remember anymore. 
And that was one of the problems, was actually finding some of those sources. I mean, a lot of them are secondary sources, so there are articles and books that are years old. Um, but it was actually locating copies. In some cases, it was very difficult to do. Um, mm. But I, I had to get hold of the original <laughs> where I could. I think the couple of cases where I couldn't, um, the, the Spanish diaries and other lanes, for, for instance, I took that from, from a newspaper, um, which I guess is how it came to people's attention. Uh, yes, it I, is. I very much, yes, I very much doubt many people have read the original <laughs> Spanish, uh, and the same with the, the French lady who accused uh, uh, Sir Milton MacNaughton. Um, so I guess I was thinking a lot on, on how did it come to our attention, and by ours, I, I suppose I mean the UK primarily in terms of the media, and obviously a lot of come out in, in, in America as well. Um, mm. But what? when was it first publicised? What? Uh, and what else was happening around there? Where did it come from? Um, reading some of the, the media um, releases, I was quite surprised, and I probably shouldn't be at this, but papers like the Daily Mail, which every year seem to trot out in a new allegation, and that completely contradicts what they supported the previous year, and often it's the same journalists involved. It's very um, sensational, not very accurate reporting. Um, so it was important to try and go beyond those newspaper articles where I could and go back to what the, the person had originally said. Yeah. You had said that you had been contacted by, um, since the publication of your book, you've been contacted by suspectologists um, who have um, tried to give you uh, corrections on their, their sections, is that right? Um, not so much on their section, but I think in, in general terms, there's a, a, a people on, on these uh, forums in particular who have been very helpful to come forward and, and say that perhaps I, I've left a few things out or um, that I've made a few errors here and there, um, which I think is great. I haven't had anyone come back and say that I've misrepresented them or that I've, you know, um, distorted their view on their, their chosen suspect. Mm -hmm. um, that, that may come down the line if more than read it, but um, so far I've not, I've not had that um, contact. Did you contact any researchers whose uh, message board posts you cite in your book um, prior to publication for clarification or anything? Uh, no, I didn't. And the reason for that was that you, I wanted to be as impartial as I possibly could. I wanted to go through and look at the evidence, document it for myself, and I think that once you start getting into correspondence with particular researchers about their, their pet theory or their um, preferences, potentially you're going to have a little bit of bias either for or against that particular theory. I wanted to stay out of any discussions really as much as I could mm -hmm. um, and just concentrate on documenting what had been said um, publicly already by by them. And by citing um, internet message board posts, this is the first Ripperology book that I've seen that um, relies heavily on message board research. And you cite numerous message boards posts on casebook.org and from JTR forums which is fine um, because as long as they're cited, you know, there's no problem with that. But did you ever um, feel kind of any qualms with like um, publishing, like for instance, um, 
if Deborah Arif, for instance, finds a possible marriage certificate for Charles Legrand and posts that on JTR forums, um, she the she might not expect that to all of a sudden be published in a book, um, you know, citing back to her message board post. It's kind of a, a um, something that that message board posters, I think, might um, start taking to an account now. Is that maybe you see what I'm getting at? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from, and I suppose um, I, first of all, I've, well, I've quoted from um, a forum site. I've credited the person um, responsible, mm-hmm. um, particularly when they've made a, 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 an interesting discovery like that. Um, I, I think it's important to give them credit for that, and to also to thank them for, for sharing their research with, with the wider community. Um, I, and there was a lot of fantastic research being done on those boards. There's a lot of people who are going away who are making some very, very interesting discoveries, and they're kind enough to, to share that uh, with everyone else who's interested in the case. Now, I take the view, rightly or wrongly, that anything that's um, on the internet is out there for the public to see, um, obviously subject to them having a, a membership of any particular organization where sometimes they're restricted by that. So unless there is something that says, please do not use beyond this, um, then I think it's okay to, to, to cite that, provided that you make sure you are giving credit where credit is due to, to those researchers. Oh, I, I, I absolutely agree. But one of the, the, the flip side of that would be um, the hopefully this doesn't happen, but um, would be uh, people, people would be more reluctant to post their research on the message boards or say something in a podcast, for example, like Michael Hawley, you know, um, he hasn't published in a, in a book, his, this, the St. Louis discoveries and the Norris testimony and everything. He's talked about it at length on my show. Yes. And he's, yes. and he's given, um, a conference talk or two about it. Um, but, uh, a researcher might get the feeling, um, that, oh, well, you know, I was kind of hoping I would have been the first person to publish my research. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's completely in, within your right to publish, um, research that appears on the message boards as long as it's properly cited, which it is in your book. Um, I just hope that that doesn't have um, any repercussions on the willingness of for researchers to utilize the message boards to share their research or to come on podcasts and discuss um, new discoveries and things like that, you know? So. I think the reality is that once it is once your information is in the public domain it's in the public domain and you've lost it then uh with mike hawley for example i'm really looking forward to his book uh and was asking him only yesterday when it's when it's uh, likely to be appearing but uh and and i think a lot of people will get a better understanding of what that new information is once they've uh, got a chance to read it in the book, but if he'd wanted to keep it um, out of the public domain, then 
that's what he needed to do and not not talk about it on the podcast or or give uh, lectures about it, it uh, because that's putting it into the public domain. Right. I, I, I'm inclined to agree, and I also think that sometimes if you have your own book coming out in the future and people have hinted at that in, in previous books, it might actually be good publicity for you um, when you actually do come out and release yourself, mm -hmm. uh, because people may be expecting um, that, that and yes, I, I, I agree, I think if something is out there then um, people have the right to um, cite it, provided they do so properly and provided they don't misrepresent um, that source as their own work or um, misquote it. Mm -hmm. I also think that your book could um, really provide a service to message board posters because I, I see all the time um, a researcher coming up and saying, oh, I oh someone posted that or I posted that somewhere sometime several years ago. I can't remember where. Let me try to find it and that yeah. type of thing where hopefully that could have been something that you picked up um, in your book and and you know we can go to that section and maybe uh, find find the source that way and who who posted about it and when and where you know yes as as almost a reference um, to the the uh, research that's posted on the message boards so yeah I, I also think that there's so much fantastic research on it it probably needs to come out into a wider domain because there's some great stuff that people put a lot of time and they've, they've made these discoveries uh, and they've shared them with a, a limited audience. Um, I think that they deserve wider credit. Yeah, and there's been a degree of uh, comments quite recently about the way in which the victims of Jack the Ripper have been uh, treated in books. Now there's a uh, a lot of reasons why they're treated the way they have been, but m uh, and maybe a lot of the research that has been done doesn't appear in the books as such, but no. an inordinate amount of research is done for the message boards with people coming along and providing all the new information, and rarely does a year go by without somebody noting on the anniversary of the death that this was the time that Annie Chapman was killed or whatever. I mean, there is a lot of feeling about the victims that comes out on the message boards that doesn't necessarily come out in books. So I think it's another good thing is, is uh, crediting the message boards for that. Although, personally, I would prefer to see all this information in a more easily accessible source. But that's got nothing to do with this book. Um, Neil, um, I, I know you have to run here shortly, right? Yes, yes, Jeff. Okay, I want to ask you before you leave, back to suspects. In a lot of these descriptions of suspects in Paul Williams' book, there, and we all know that um, newspaper articles don't tell the full story of what may have occurred when the police were notified of a potential suspect. Many of the men accused of being the Ripper were, according to the newspapers, able to clear their name just by giving the police their address. It's seemingly, right? Whereas some of the accused were cleared on the spot, 
apparently, according to, to how the newspaper account reads, while others were actually brought into the station where they were later cleared and released. Can you kind of describe what the procedure was for the police if a citizen alerted them to someone who may have been or they suspected of being Jack the Ripper? First of all, you believe everything that you read in the newspapers, John? No, I'm, I'm referring to just, just the accounts uh, published in Paul Williams' book. Large variety of situations in which people were accused of being the Ripper and cleared. Yeah, I mean, it all, de it all depends on, on the suspect, obviously. But um, commonly, so let's say, for example, a member of the public suspected their next-door neighbor or so on and so forth. They would obviously find the, the nearest Bobby they'd probably go to the police station and make a report there. They'd have to write a statement down. They'd have to give their, their reasons for the su suspecting that person. Um, if the person's known to the police and they're aware of him, they may take, um, well, they're supposed to take um, uh, observations, basically surveillance, is, is, is watch them carefully. That doesn't necessarily mean you put our team of detectives out there and so on and so forth, but, you know, have a word with the local beat bobber. Um, the local beat bobber will probably make inquiries with other neighbours and, and basically try and establish what type of character this person is and what they've been doing over the past few days. And they'd be especially interested, obviously, over the time, over the period of the murders. Um, so, so, that, that, so long and the short is they would make inquiries. Now that's okay if it's a local, local suspect, but let's say we've got somebody who was, was piloting Gravesend or wherever, or somewhere else in the country. What they would do is send telegrams off to the local constabulary and ask them to make similar inquiries in their neck of the woods. Now in terms of, of, of um, defining who is a genuine suspect and who is not, that really is down to, to the skills of the police involved and the detectives and the, the, those who are making the inquiries. Um, experienced bobbies know, know when, when something, they, they have the, the sniff of it, um, when something is genuine and when, when something is a little bit far-fetched. Um, but what they're doing is, whilst they're making in, inquiries, is obviously trying to look for discrepancies with, within that uh, within the stories of either the person making the allegation or the person themselves. Now, on occasion, they would actually speak to the suspect and just generally um, ask them um, where they were on the night of the um, 31st of August or, or what have you, who were they with, can anybody prove that they were... were and we see this with the um, John Pizer, um, although... He was a little bit suspicious in the fact that um, he did go to ground straight away. And the pr proper thing he should have done was actually reporting himself to the police station as soon as he had wind that he was su suspected. But but that's the kind of thing that they would do. So for, for someone like, say, um, uh, Jim Cannell, who was basically walking out with a, a lady friend and made some comments that she, she thought were suspicious and uh, was taken to the police station, um, Inquiries would be made with his local police station before they, they decide to let him go. Is that the correct procedure? Well, yeah. I mean, they, they, first of all, they'd have to establish whether he is a, a risk of, of fleeing. 
Um, right. So they wouldn't necessarily hold him if, if they felt that he may may go on the run, as it were, which is, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> unlikely if he is innocent. But um, um, if they were, they would actually hold him in custody for a short period of time while they make the inquiries. You've got to bear in mind, this was in an age of telegrams. So very rarely were letters sent. So telegrams would have been fired over and inquiries were made pretty instantaneously um, to, to see if the, 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 the story pans out. Um, so they'd either, like I said, they'd either detain him if they feel he was at risk of flight or they'd, they'd release him under the proviso. They'd say, look, we'll make inquiries into this and we'll, we'll get back to you. Okay. Do we know if the police at the time kept a, a some kind of master list of everybody that they had uh, questioned and cleared, um, so that they could refer back to if, if let's say a, a second person three weeks later makes a similar accusation in, against someone that they had already questioned and cleared. Yeah, I mean, the police were notorious record keepers, believe it or not. They, they don't necessarily keep the records, they've probably thrown them out by now, obviously. But no, um, they're notorious record keepers, so yeah, they would have a, well, a, a suspect book, well, a suspect and list, and we, we know we that. Know, yeah, sorry, 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 sorry. I was just going to say Harry. we know, because some of the suspects were accused twice, Nikana Benelus was one of them who, who cropped up twice an investigation, and the second time it was said that he'd been previously arrested. So we know that there were some kind of records being kept. And the thing is, they, they, it, it, if that person's been accused once and then he's accused a second time, they would have to make inquiries into the second accusation. They can't say, oh, yeah, he was, was looked at before and we cleared him before, so that's that. No, each, each suspect, each reference to a suspect will be investigated, as would each murder within the file would be investigated. Everything would be investigated separately and on its own merit. You do wonder if even those procedures made it uh, likely that, a per that Jack the Ripper was questioned and slipped through the cracks, because it happens, as we know, in modern with modern-day serial killers. I could well, na name a whole list of modern-day serial killers who were showed up on a list, were accused at some point or another, questioned by the police and released, and then they later turned out to be the person who perpetrated the murders. Um, so if, it, if mistakes occur in this day and age, then one would think that the odds of mistakes occurring back in the Victorian age were were, you know, fourfold, well, you know. So, uh, quite a few people have said that the gap between the double murder and, and Mary Kelly's murder might have been because the um, killer had actually been questioned by the police and decided to lay low for a bit. Now, of course, that's pure speculation, um, but it is a possibility that, that um, the police had stopped him um, shortly after that double event and that he decided not to um, attack anyone else for a period of time until he felt he was in the clear again. Well, well the, the, we know the police stepped up their inquiries in October after the double event. They, they sent out handbills, they went around all the lodging houses, they really did do a massive trawl yes. of inquiry uh, making throughout the area and he, he could have been caught up in that and thought, as, as Paul's rightly pointed out, that well, hold on, I better, better hold off here for a bit. Um, until it get, lies low and uh, until it uh, cools down a little. 
So yeah, yeah, I can, I, I completely get that, and that's that's a high possibility in my thinking. It it is something that crosses your mind as you read through the book. Wow, um, this person was questioned and released pretty speedily. Um, with you know, as far as the newspaper account, you know, that's what the problem is. Is we 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 only have the brief um, newspaper account, you know, of what was reported to have occurred. So we yeah, don't so we don't see. get an insight into the extent of the police's, you know, checking out the background of any particular person. Uh, so. We haven't really got any reason to doubt the extent of the police uh, investigation into individuals. That if they've cleared them, it would have been for a reason. We may not know whether that reason was based on the fact that they, they've ascertained someone's alibi, definitely, uh, or whether it was based on their their feeling having made inquiries that it was unlike that person would have been involved. Um, so yes, it's possible that, that, that someone slipped through the net, but I don't think we, we have any evidence that that occurred. I think it's, you know, we, we, we've got to trust the police um, and their inquiries would have been reasonably robust. You see, a lot, a lot of people tend to pick up on, you know, we, the police of the time had not seen a murderer such as Jack the Ripper, who's the world's first serial killer, which is an incorrect fact. Um, but what they tend to, they do not realise is that each murder is investigated separately. It's not investigated as a series. So each murder will be investigated on its own merit. And therefore each suspect attached to that, to that murder will be investigated on, on, on their own merit as well. But also another thing I'd like to add is that arresting somebody is one thing, but gaining the evidence to convict is something completely different, and it's, it was very difficult in that day and age to, to gain that. There's no such things, well, very limited things with regards to forensics and what they could do. They could match up boot prints and so on and so forth, but there's very little um, biological evidence that they could attach to the the, the criminal to the crime. Um, so, so whilst whilst we're looking at suspects. Like I said, it, it's extremely difficult to to turn a suspect into to uh, or suspicion into conviction. So, so it's it's, it, it's an extremely difficult job, even in today today with with the wonders of modern science for for a police to, to gain gain a conviction. One of the aspects of your book I really like is back to how just how you described the evolution of the suspect is. You don't draw any conclusions. You, you'll point out things like Druitt had a cricket match six hours after he supposedly murdered, and he did really well in the cricket match. You'll point out a researcher who has brought that up, but you, you, you don't then take the next step that we do see in a lot of suspect books and say, uh, therefore the likelihood of Druitt being the Ripper is to that. So. Well, I think that that's for two. And first of all, um, I'm documenting the evidence saying why people suspected it. I'm not coming in as, as sort of the judge and jury um, to right. criticize other people's theories. Um, secondly, at the end of the book, I do put a bit of my own thought into it in the sense of where I think the suspects sit now in terms of who should be cleared um, and who should remain on the suspect list and who should be at the top of the suspect list or, or in, in the top 10. Um, 
But I, I don't think it's my role to come in and criticise other people's research. I think I can point out if there's an obvious flaw in their argument, uh, then it's, it's fair to point that out. But I, I don't want to lead the readers to favour a particular suspect. The whole point is that here is the evidence. Uh, think for yourself, and hopefully that will then inspire people to go away and do some more research into individuals that they find interesting from, from the book. Yeah, it's it it. We try and do the same with the A to Z. It's not really yes. one's place anymore. It used to be at one stage, perhaps, but uh, it isn't the place anymore to make comments about individual suspects, unless, of course, they are completely off the wall. In which case, there is a possible argument for informing people that they shouldn't waste their time, but with the suspect, yep. but it's not something that uh, that I would uh, advocate. No, because I, I mean, I'm not here championing a particular suspect because I said before I haven't got one. I, I don't think there's any candidate for me that stands out as being someone who I um, would put money on being Jack the Ripper. Um, so I'm not in that situation. I also think that if you do have a particular suspect that you're promoting, then you should focus on the case against him rather than going crash everybody else's suspect because if the case is strong enough then it will stand up on its own merit. Yeah. Yes, no, it was the the uh, impersonal aspect of, of the book it was another feature that I, I liked about it. It kind of reminded me like, um, oh, yes, Neil, you have to go. Yeah, I'm afraid I have to go now. That's, so that's okay. I really appreciate well, you taking the time. It was short notice, I know. My wife's birthday is next weekend, so I couldn't do it well, next weekend. I usually um, give you guys more time, I know, So, but, but I appreciate we could, you. We could, have had, we could have had her on the show as well. She'd love to. <laughs> oh, she would just, really have enjoyed that. <laughs> Happy birthday, darling. You're on the podcast. Um, oh, I just want to wish you the best of luck with the book, mate. It sounds really fascinating. I look forward to reading it when I get a copy. Thank you, okay. very much appreciated. Yeah, and appreciate talking. Uh, I really enjoy talking to you guys as well. But take care, and I look forward to listening to you. Thanks, Neil. See ya. Cheers, Neil. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Back to uh, an, another example of it. As far as I know, um, by remembering, like, for instance, there, there's a, when you discuss Ostrog, um yeah. And you, you um, go through the the reasons that we all know already why why he wouldn't be a possible Ripper suspect, mainly because he was in jail in France at the time. But Hainsworth um, suspects that Ostrog was initially named based on McNaughton's past history with Ostrog. Um, isn't that right, Paul? To where um, um, Haynes, Hainsworth's theory is that McNaughton named Ostrog as more of a grudge against Ostrog. Um, at, at, at the same time, kind of throwing up a red herring in, into the mix. Yeah, I, I can't bring to mind uh, what Jonathan Hainsworth said uh, about Ostrog that... Well, the, what I, Ostrog was involved in the theft of some yeah, um, that, uh, items from a so, college. That, that's yeah, right. Yeah. 
Um, but I think what happened with, uh, with Ostrog, in each case, in the case of Druitt, Kosminski, and Ostrog, we know that in the case of Druitt, uh, he appears to have come to light because of private information received probably by McNaughton personally, although possibly by the police in general. Uh, Anderson and Swanson uh, were aware of Kosminski. So I think somebody uh, is likely to have put Ostrog forward, and he may well have been considered uh, seriously for reasons that we we don't know, because obviously there's there's in in none of those three cases is there anything that uh, in in what we know about them to suggest that they were Jack the Ripper, and that. It, but it does indicate they were foremost in the minds of the, of the senior police uh, at that time. I still we don't know the reasons why, but there would have been a reason. And I don't think it, personally, I don't think it was because of the vendetta that McNaughton had with, with them. Yeah, but that's, but that's succinctly putting what I was in the process of trying to say, yeah. I think Ostrog was uh, a suspect at, at the time that McNaughton wrote the memoranda. Yes. It later emerged um, as a consequence of a, of a later court case with Ostrog that he had in fact been in an asylum or in prison in France at the time. That means that Ostrog would have been written off the list straight away at, the, at that stage, just like he is today. But McNaughton didn't know that when he wrote the report, because that information wasn't available to him at that time. So the question about Ostrog really is why on earth anybody suspected him yes, uh, at all. Uh, but the same question can be can be levelled at Kosminski and at Druitt, and yet we know that we know for a fact that McNaughton was favouring favouring Druitt, assuming that Druitt is the man that he was talking about. Yes, I I think we we just don't know what information they had, and that's one of the problems with this type of research is you've got limited sources. Um, a lot of information just isn't there either because it never existed or because it, it's no longer extant. Um, what we can conclude is that the police didn't have a, um, a clear idea that they didn't have a number one suspect they had sufficient evidence against, um, which has left a, a wide open field for all these innocent people to be accused. Yeah. I think that um, uh, McNaughton's private information um, is obviously something that we don't know. So. Um, that's that's something that led him to have his belief, and uh, it's but but he didn't apparently know about the evidence that Anderson and possibly Swanson had mm. about Kosminski. So again, uh, one might suppose that that was kept at a level that McNaughton, for some reason, never accessed. It's all very odd, very strange. Yeah. Yes. It must have been really difficult for you to, to um, throw everything in about these particular suspects, uh, uh, especially the Kosminskis and Druids, with the arguments and the counter arguments, you know, because these two particular suspects and Tumblety to a certain extent, 
have been hashed over and over and over again on the message boards for yes. you know the past 20 years. I, I think there's too many counter-arguments, because I said that if, if I put down that um, Drew was accused because of this, this, and this, um, every challenge to that argument I don't think necessarily needs to be included, because I'm just stating what the evidence has been put forward against him. Um, so, yes, some things have been picked out a lot on the message boards, and there's been some very good counter-arguments against some of the claims made about certain suspects. But I didn't really want to get into that second and third debate. Um, in a sense, I'm going back to the original and saying, okay, here is the argument, here are the reasons why so-and-so is suspected. Take it or leave it. Um, and in some cases, I've referenced ongoing debates um, where I think it is still relevant to that original reason for suspicion. It is similar to like Robin O'Dell's Ripperology book, aided by the way that you organized the group of suspects into theme, was something I found pretty, pretty fresh. Um, Colin Wilson did the same as well, I think 80, in 1988, I think. Um, and it might have been Wilson and O'Dell who wrote that one. Um, and uh, summing up in verdict, or yes, that's right. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Um, so, so again, they split it into categories, and for me, that was the most relevant thing to do. I mean, some of them are a little bit loose, you know, like I've put um, John Williams in with the women because <laughs> because of Lizzie Williams. So it's not, you know, an exact um, category, um, but generally, I think they're together because they, they fit together. You can see either chronologically um, in the early chapters where things have happened in, in, in that sequence or in the later chapters where people are grouped by occupation uh, or by a theory that, that, that links them all. Well, before we uh, wrap it up, I wanted to mention um, that um, on top of publishing your book this past month and having it reviewed in The Rip, you also have the cover feature in the new Ripperologist. Yes, I did. Thank which you. is a, a strange tale of another Mary Kelly story that was reported shortly after her murder. Um, that I had, I don't recall I had even heard of this. Um, uh, I, I think I, I had it. I had it in my book. <laughs> yes. uh, oh, I'm um, sorry. I haven't read the facts in years. Um, I'm no, afraid it, it, it was in the uncensored facts, which you probably haven't read for even longer. <laughs> I do have a copy of it, the blue one, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> um, well, this uh, Mary Kelly story was reported shortly after her murder, identifying her as a woman who lived and worked for a man whose wife. It's kind of convoluted, um, but his it's very, very convoluted. Um, and I, I, I suppose where I was coming up with this, and I've always been interested in, in the John Rees story, because he is the only source for Mary Kelly living in Wales that does not come from Mary herself. Because all the other people who knew her in London uh, 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 who, who said she came from Wales, she told them that story, or, or so they said. Right? So the only evidence, the only independent evidence from my lived in Wales is this story. Uh, and so when you break it down, you find out it's not particularly reliable anyway. But for me, it raised a lot of questions um, and a lot of possibilities. Um, I wrote about Mary Kelly for an and ripperologist where I went through the Welsh background in some detail. 
I actually looked at every marriage certificate for every Mary Kelly married in Wales in that period to prove that there was no, no, no legal marriage in, in that name and traced every single one of them apart from two uh, who, who I've got good reasons to, to discount. So, um, yes, that's, but I keep, kept coming back to this story from John Rees that seemed too good to be true and when you break it down it is too good to be true but it does uncover a, a rather sordid world of um, some very, how can I put this, some very interesting characters, particularly his um, first father-in-law, or second father-in-law, sorry. And, and what interested me that John Rees's second wife, the lady who was tried for, for the abortions, we don't actually know um, who she really was. Yes, she was the said she was the daughter of Dr. Hopkins, but I couldn't find any record of her birth at all, even though the rest of his daughters, their births are fully recorded in the area where he was living. And at some point, he split from his, his family uh, uh, and all his children and took up a life just with, with this other daughter. And I just found that very interesting. Um, and then, of course, she marries John Reese, and there's um, evidence that the two of them were carrying on with some kind of abortion trade. And to me, it's the sort of thing that, that, that Mary Kelly, if she was in Wales, might have been involved in. I say might, um, because obviously it is very speculative. And the timing of John Rees going off to Swansea and Dr. Hopkins dying could coincide quite well with the time that Mary Kelly came to London. Mm -hmm. But other things, um, just um, timeline-wise, don't really add up, it seems, right? Isn't it she was supposedly already in London um, at the time when some of these events were occurring in Wales, right? Yes, well, that's that's right. So the, the story from John Rees is that Mary Kelly worked as a, as a servant for him and his first wife. Uh, now, I found out the first wife died in 1874. So if Mary Kelly was working for him, she would have been quite young, based on the age of 25. She would have been 11, 12. Um, so I find that a bit difficult to stomach. Obviously, there were children employed at that time. But then John Rees goes on to say that, that essentially they, they stayed in contact. He knew what pub she was drinking at um, 10 years or so later. He even saw her in London. She spoke to him in Welsh. Now, that, to me, is not a, a master-servant relationship. If that part of the story is true, it suggests something a bit more deeper. Um, and I don't think it is true. I think it, it, it's a bit of a fantasy. But why it came forward and why it came forward then, it's hard to hard to say. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought initially that, that Ruth was perhaps trying to make money. Um, we know he needed cash to fund the, the legal fees for his wife's trial. But it's a very odd way of trying to do it, particularly when, if you're talking about being associated with uh, a murdered prostitute and you've got your wife on trial for procuring abortion. It's, to me, not... <laughs> it's going to generate adverse publicity, surely. And, uh, um, so, right, and uh, his and his father-in-law stood trial for the same offense, like yes. several years earlier. So it was kind of like a family business, in a way. And, and that's what that's what it seems to me. Seems that Dr. Hopkins did this, and his later daughter, the mysterious daughter, carried it on with with John Lewis when when he married her. Uh, so they had this trade going, and yes, you know that. If Mary Kelly did come from Carmarthen, which is highly unlikely, but if she did, 
and she, she was a, a, a prostitute in that area, then it's quite possible she would have at least have been aware of, of these people mm -hmm. and the trade they were carrying out. Well, I encourage everyone to read the article. It's a really good one. And, it, and um, I was glad to see it because um, I wasn't sure if you were going to just um, have the Jack the Ripper suspect book as your... Um, uh, you know, as your, as your main thing, but so it was good to see, uh, you know, an article by you, um, about Mary Kelly and some of the, um, murky, um, stories, you know, that came out after her death. Uh, so I hope you continue well, with more of that type of research. It's really good. Thank you. I do have plans for a book on Mary Kelly. I want to really go into all the different theories about her, uh, about her origins. Um, and that's been on the back burner for a while. I've got lots of notes and lots of, of information, but I guess I was trying to wait to see if she could be definitely identified first, because um, Chris Scott did a brilliant book um, with the real Mary Kelly, um, and that, that was excellent, but I think there's so much else that could build on that and make a, quite a detailed volume into the, the search for her to bring up all the different theories and to um, see where they've taken us and, and what what red herons they've thrown up along the way. One little word of warning is that back in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, um, when I lived in Cardiff and was interested in Mary Kelly because of her alleged connections with, with Cardiff, uh, I too wanted to, uh, or, or thought in terms of writing a book about Mary Kelly, um, and so 30 years later, I'm still here. Uh, it's a frightening thought, so just, just bear that in mind. That's what I was, you know, when, <laughs> that's what I was wondering. Is this going to take you another 10 years? <laughs> I, I, I think it will take a long time. But unlike the record, there is hopefully a definite conclusion in the sense that, that one day we might be able to, to identify her and finally lay her to rest properly. Um, and I guess that's something that... that, that a lot of research would like to do. Um, so, but yeah, I'll probably just keep them, the notes there and, and never ever publish them, but we'll, we'll see. Okay. All right. Well, we'll uh, go ahead and wrap up if that's okay. Yep. No, that's okay. fine with me. Yeah. I want to thank Paul Williams for being on the show today. Paul's new book is entitled The Jack the Ripper Suspects The Definitive Guide and Encyclopedia. And I encourage everyone out there listening to pick up a copy. It, it's really well worth it and a really good resource for Ripperology. So uh, thank you again for coming on, Paul. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jonathan. Much appreciated. That was Paul Williams talking with us about his book, Jack the Ripper Suspects, The Definitive Guide and Encyclopedia. Thanks again to Paul Williams and to Paul Begg and Neil Bell for joining in on the discussion. Paul Williams' book is available now on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle, and I really encourage you to check it out. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian and Edwardian crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.